remember your promises, that we remember your character, um, that it would give us strength, give us hope. Uh, I pray that you would just meet us here this morning, God, that you would just open our eyes to see more of you. I pray that you would speak through Michael. Uh, just use him this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. He really was only going to sing four verses. <laughs> he was just joking about that. We are um, going to attempt this morning, and we'll see how how time goes, um, finish up the main body of the letter of 1 Peter this morning, all the way through verse 11. Um, I know there are two paragraphs, but they go together um, well. I think they're meant to be taken um, together as a, as a complete whole, but if we don't have time to finish it, I'm not going to try to rush, rush through, so we'll see how that goes. Um, before I read how it probably been 15 or 20 years ago when I was just first starting to, to memorize Scripture, I'd gone to a conference and met a guy um, who regularly memorized whole books of the Bible. So we were talking, how do you do that? And that seems overwhelming. And um, he was in the process of, at that time, memorizing First Timothy. said, but, um, but at the end, there's that whole section of widows that I just have left out because it doesn't really apply to me. I thought, well, that's a little strange, but I was young and didn't know. I said, okay, that's fine, so you can leave out the parts that... And then later I'm thinking, but, but Paul also writes in a letter to Timothy that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And, and so I, even though there's this idea of, well, widows wasn't applicable to him for, for some reason, does that mean we just skim over those parts that don't seem right? So we come to a passage of Scripture this morning that at least uh, part of you may read through and say that, well, that doesn't really apply to me. But we're going to talk this morning how actually it does, um, see if we can come up with some application for all of us this morning. So let me begin in the beginning of chapter 5 and read all the way through uh, to verse 11 of First Peter. Peter writes, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we look at Your Word, I pray that You would open our ears to hear, our hearts to understand, and our wills to change and be like You. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. He begins by exhorting the elders, um, and most of you sitting out there are not in that category, and so can we just skip over that? He's not talking to me. Um, but there's, uh, there's a couple of reasons why um, 
we need to do that and why it's applicable to us. Um, number one, not only in this passage, but in in First Timothy and Titus, Paul lists uh, qualifications of elders. The majority of those things are just simply aspects of the Christian life that separate mature from immature believers. And so whether or not you ever aspire to the office of elder, whether you hold the office of elder, whether it doesn't even apply to you at all, maturity in the Christian life does apply to you. And so regardless of where you think you fit in these first four verses, they're applicable to you because they are marks of a mature believer. And so whether you're thinking, well, I don't, I'm not going to be an elder, I can't be an elder, I shouldn't be an elder, I'm not ready yet. Nonetheless, these ideas in these first four verses apply to everybody in this room because they're marks of maturity, they're marks of, um, of who we are and who we should be as a church. Secondly, there are ways that you can pray for the elders in the body that exist. As you read through this and you say, oh, this is what an elder is supposed to look like. This is what an elder is, is supposed to represent and be. Then necessarily those will be things that are temptations in life for elders and that you can pray for us. God, would you allow them, would you help them, would you through your spirit strengthen them to be these things? So what are these things? He gives... Um, general instructions to, to an elder and then he gives three characteristics of what an elder looks like. Those he says to shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight. So the general idea is that an elder is supposed to shepherd like a shepherd does a sheep, cares for, feeds, nourishes, protects, disciplines if necessary. And then he says by exercising oversight, um, it's a word that means to accept responsibility for someone. Someone aspires to be an elder, what they are aspiring to, what they are committing to is to accept responsibility for a group of people. God, by your strength and by your help, I accept that I will be responsible for the spiritual welfare and nourishment of a group of people. And then he gives three characteristics of what that looks like. He says... But halfway through verse 2, not under compulsion, but willingly. Um, oh, I've got to do that. Nobody else will step up. Well, no, that's not what we're looking for. In an elder, we're looking for someone who willingly desires to shepherd and take on that responsibility. So it's a willing heart to do those things that God has called the mature in faith to do. Second, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. In other words, not eager for gain, either that monetarily or in stature or position or that you would look at me or Bo or whoever else was going to be an elder in a different way. Not greedy for gain, but that word eagerly means really eager to serve. I'm not eager to get something out of it. I'm eager to give for somebody else. That's what 
Peter is calling elders to do, to be eager to give of themselves. It's not eager to get. Again, whether that's material or even the way we, we look at people. Status, power, authority. It's not what Peter is calling elders to. The third thing is not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. While elders are called to a position of leadership, it's not leadership that's coercive, it's not leadership that's domineering, it's not leadership that's abusive, it's not leadership that demands its own way, it's leadership through example. And so as you think about, especially Bo and I and anybody else that would aspire to that office, we would covet your prayers towards those ends, that we would be willing, that we would be eager to serve, and that we would, by our lives and our actions and our words, set an example. And then as you think about yourself, think about the situations that you have uh, a place of authority in, or just as you are... Um, going about your day-to-day business, do those characteristics describe you as well as you seek to move towards maturity? Because ultimately that's what Peter calls everyone to do. Beginning in verse 5, he says, Likewise, uh, he uses that word likewise in that long section when he's talking about family relationships. And it always refers back to husbands and to wives to the way that certain people are supposed to submit. So in the same way here, likewise, you younger people, and and again, there may be older people that aren't elders. Most people take that as not younger in age, but younger in maturity. In other words, just a way of saying everybody else, right? You submit to your elders in the same way. Well, what is that same way? Well, it's willingly. So same three Adverbs, willingly. Do you do it eagerly? Are you eager to serve? And then finally, are you doing it as an example to others? Your submission in any way in life is always a sign or a symbol to other people. It's always a testimony to other folks of what the cross of Christ ultimately looks like. Do you willingly submit? Do you are you eager to serve the people around you? Do you delight in the body of Christ enough to be an example for your brothers and sisters in Christ? And then to the wider world as they look at you and see how you behave towards one another. And ultimately he he ends that and all of you clothe yourselves, put on humility. Don't think of yourselves more highly than somebody else. That's the goal here, whether it's elders or not elders, whether it's older or younger, however you view yourself as you relate to the body of Christ, do you do it humbly? Are you out for yourself or is your relationship to this body for the good of everybody else sitting in here? And then there's a warning because God is opposed to the proud. He's opposed to the person who says, you know what, I'm going to do it my way. You know what, I don't want to listen to the advice of anybody else, especially those who are put in, in charge of the care of me spiritually. I'm going to do what I want to do. God's opposed to that. But He gives grace to the humble. 
Now, as we've talked about before, when I humble myself, there is necessarily always an opportunity for someone to take advantage of you. As elders, if we choose not to be domineering, but if we do choose to follow those examples, if we're willing, if we're eager to serve, if we lead by example, is there a chance that, that the body, either as a whole or individuals, will take advantage of that and do their own thing? Yes, of course there is. And that really doesn't matter about how Bo and I are supposed to behave. Makes no difference whatsoever. Is there a chance that if you are willing to serve and eager to submit and choose to be an example by your life by submitting to Bo and I that there's a chance that we would take advantage of you and be domineering at times or abusive or seek to build the church the way we want it for our own pleasure and benefit. Yes, of course there is. We're sinful human beings. And yet God calls us to take that risk, so to speak, because it's the right thing to do. It's because of what Jesus did on the cross. And people took advantage of His kindness, His generosity, His sacrifice. His humility in coming to planet Earth in and of itself, people took advantage of that. They didn't treat Him the way He was supposed to be treated. They didn't treat Him like God. And so He calls us to be like Christ. And when we do that, when we... When you and I humble ourselves before each other, again, it's a testimony to the world. It's a picture of the cross of Christ. I don't understand this cross business, the world would say. That's, that's silly. That's stupid, in fact. Well, no, actually, it's a, it's a beautiful picture of people getting along and loving and serving one another to God's glory. So how do we do that? Because that's difficult. Right? I can't just muster up the energy and, and do all those things. And I think verses 6 to 11 sort of explain how we do that. And it doesn't begin with me deciding I'm going to be willing to serve and I'm going to be eager and I'm going to be an example. It begins by being humble under the mighty hand of God. Most versions say, humble yourselves, kind of a reflexive idea. It's actually a, a passive verb. Be humbled under the mighty hand of God. But if that's not where it starts, if we don't first fix this relationship, we'll never get this one right. But I'll never do what I'm called to do for you if I don't do what I'm called to do under God's mighty hand. And that, that, I, that, that phrase, the mighty hand of God, is a phrase that's repeated over and over again in Deuteronomy. Several times. Every single time it always refers to how God delivered them from the Egyptians. Deuteronomy chapter 3, 4, 5, 7, 9, and 11, that phrase is used, the mighty hand of God. And every time it's talking about delivering the Israelites from the Egyptians. So we think, uh, Peter, who alludes to the Old Testament every other verse in this book about, in my mind is thinking about those things. And we've already talked in here about the idea of, of 
our deliverance from sin on the cross really is being a second exodus. We have been delivered from sin, not from the Egyptians. And so as we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, we need to, that, what that idea is, I'm, I'm remembering that I have been delivered from sin. I can't deliver myself. I have no ability whatsoever to save myself. I can't do it. The defeat of, of my sin on the cross should humble me. The God of the universe had to die so that, so that He and I could have a relationship. I, I couldn't do that. I couldn't muster up anything. I couldn't perform enough. I couldn't say the right things, do the right things, offer enough sacrifices. Ultimately, for me to have a relationship with Him, it had to be by faith and through what He's done for me. That He made a way for me. There's no other way for me to get there. And that's a humbling thing. Peter in the, in the upper room when Jesus was going to wash his feet, he said, oh, you're not washing my feet. Right? He was way too proud for one that he knew was above him at least in some way, even if G Peter didn't quite understand everything about Jesus. I know that you're too good to wash my feet. Jesus says, but if I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. And Peter didn't get that. He says, well, then wash all of me. He says, wait a minute, you still don't get it, Right? The issue is, is not that you all need to be washed. The issue is that you have to let me be a servant. Peter, if you won't let me wash your feet, how are you going to let me die for you? If you're so prideful that you won't let me get my hands a little dirty because you've been walking through filth all day, dirt and sweat and probably sewage, if you won't let me get my hands dirty, how in the world will you let me bleed for you? Will you let me know your most inmost thoughts and take those upon myself? Not just your dirt, not just your sweat, Peter, but your sin. We humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God because we cannot save ourselves. The second thing is, he says in verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That same mighty hand that delivered them from the Egyptians was the same mighty hand that provided everything they could possibly need. It wasn't everything that they wanted, but it was everything that they needed. He provided protection from the death angel with the blood of the Passover lamb. He provided food. He provided clothing. He provided all leadership, all that they need as they wandered the wilderness during those years. And they complained and they whined, but had they casted themselves just upon Him and said, God, we trust in You, He would have given them what they needed at the right time instead of that antagonistic of always being demanding and complaining. So we, we cast our cares upon Him because He cares for us. See, part of our problem is we, we come upon something that we can't do or that's difficult or that's hard or that worries us and we, we pray, we actually ask, we go to Him. But then over time we get better at what we're doing and we find that 
we don't need him anymore. We've, we've gotten good at whatever skill or task or job or relationship that we're in, and we go, you know what, I can handle this. And part of what Peter is saying is, you have to cast everything upon him, because not only does he care for you, but he's able to provide. He is the one that has the mighty hand. Do we get so content and comfortable that we forget that He has what we need and what we need is His strength and power for those everyday things even if we think we can do them? Many of you go to jobs every day that you've done for a long time and you go, I've got this. We don't, we don't need God to do this because it's the same thing today as it was yesterday and that went okay. But do we come to Him asking for His strength and His help and His compassion? So why is why is Peter interested in this? Why is why does he care that we that we humble ourselves before each other? Why does he care that we humble ourselves before God? Why is that important? Why is he making all this this fuss about us as a body and the way we relate to each other? through the whole letter, really. Why is all that important? Well, ultimately, in one sense, he tells us in verse 8, we have an enemy, we have an adversary. And that adversary is prowling around. So it's like a roaring lion. You know why a lion roars at that time in the Mideast? Because there were flocks of sheep, and a roaring lion would scare the sheep enough that they would scatter. And when they scattered, they're by themselves, and it's easy just to pick them off. So you have an enemy that wants to isolate you, wants you to think that you don't need other believers in your life. And when he's convinced you through fear or pride, or I just don't, those people sort of drive me crazy, then your easy pickings for him to devour you. And so there's a warning. He says in verse 8, be sober-minded. Be watchful. That word sober-minded, he's used, this is the third time he's used that in this book. He used it in 113. We need to be sober-minded, aware of what's going on. We need to be disciplined in our thoughts because we need to set our hope completely on the grace that's to be revealed to us at the coming of Jesus Christ, he says in chapter 1. If you don't think straight, you won't depend upon grace. And then he says in 4.7, we need to think straight so that we will pray. And then here we need to think straight because we have an enemy. You need to be aware. You need to be awake. You need to be mindful of the fact that someone seeks to separate you from your brothers and sisters in Christ to make you doubt, to get you by yourself so that he can devour you. So that he can ruin your walk and your witness and your peace and your joy. Because, see, nobody has the problems that you have. Nobody struggles with the sin that you struggle with. Right? Which is why he says, cast all your care upon him, for he cares for you. But nobody has the same issues that you have. Right? He's gotten you by yourself. He's made you believe that I can't tell anybody my struggles, my fears, my doubts, my hurts, my frustrations, because nobody will understand. Oftentimes, to the discredit of the church, people don't understand and they react incorrectly. Again, that falls right into 
Satan's plan of let's separate them and alienate them from one another because then they're easy pickings. So how do we avoid that? Verse 9, resist him being firm in your faith. What do you believe? Do you know what you believe? Do you set your mind on those things that are above? Do you remind yourself over and over again as we talked about before the truth in chapter 2, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you may follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to the one who judges justly. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you were healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Are we firm in that truth that one died for you and cares for you and desires to, to make you whole and complete? Or the passage in Ephesians that we read about putting on the armor of God. Do you take up the shield of faith? Do you put on the, bless, the breastplate of righteousness? Do you continue to tell yourself, because of what Christ has done, I am righteous in His sight. God does love me. I am His child. Not in a prideful way, but as a shield, as a guard against Satan's attacks. Have you memorized portions of Scripture to help you fight off the enemy? Have you taken the sword of the Spirit as an offensive weapon? When those doubts come in. When the lies are told to you, do you count, do you dwell on them? Do you throw yourself a pity party? Do you begin to spiral down and believe those truths? Or do you fight back with the Word of God? No, that's not true. So we resist Him, but we also are aware that we're not the only ones suffering in this world. Now, I don't think we should start necessarily playing the comparison game, but if we look across this world, any suffering that's going on in here can seem to pale in comparison to what's going on in other parts of the world. For people are dying for their faith. And I don't think Peter means this as a discouragement, but as an encouragement. You know what? You're not alone. There are other people in the church, capital C, at large, who are suffering just like you are. And again, he's writing to folks that are, that are suffering at least mild persecution. <coughs> but let that also be an encouragement to you that there are people sitting in this room who are dealing with some of the same issues that you're dealing with, whether you want to believe that or not. And so we resist him by being reminded of, I'm not alone. I'm not alone. Even though Satan desires to make me alone, I'm not alone. I have brothers and sisters in Christ who would love me and care for me. And then in verse 10, he points us forward. He points us into the future. And after you have suffered a little while, 
The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He compares our suffering as short-term compared to eternal glory. What you're undergoing now is temporal, it's limited, and it really has no comparison to what will be one day in glory, when He will indeed finally restore you to the way that you should be, to the way that we were in the garden, whole and complete and walking with Him. He will confirm you. He will strengthen you. He will establish you. There will be a firm foundation of a relationship with God that lasts eternity. And so our current attitude should be, to Him be dominion, or the word may mean power forever. See, what they were undergoing was the power of Rome. And Peter, in a culturally blasphemous, seditious, rebellious statement says to Him, to God, be power forever. Not to Caesar. Not to the elders in your church. Not to the own king, your own kingdom that you're trying to build. To God be power forever. That's the attitude that we walk through life with. God is the one who deserves all praise and glory and honor because He is the one who is all-powerful. It's not Caesar. It's not the government. It's not ultimately the leaders in the church. It's not your own heart that sometimes would pull you in a direction that you think you should go. It's not your dreams of success. It's not your desire for a certain position or even for someone to like you or think a certain thing about you, to Him be all glory and power. That's what He has called us to. But all of that only begins as we are humbled under His mighty hand. That theme that He says in a thousand different ways in this letter of Are you setting your mind on Christ? Do you remember what He has done for you? He has delivered you from the power and from the penalty of sin. You can't do it on your own. You shouldn't try to do it on your own. You will fail. But He's given us a a body of believers to love and care for us and make us into the people that He's called us to be. And that's the message of of 1 Peter. A humility that looks like Christ, who left the throne of heaven for you and for me, for each one sitting in here, that we might be the people that He's called us to be, a, a light to the world, a testimony to one another. Next week when we come back, we're going to look at the last three verses, the, the end. And we're going to spend some time praying through uh, this book as a, as a whole as we, as we wrap up, as we finish uh, our journey through First Peter. My encouragement to you over the course of the next week um, is, to, is to think hard and long. Am I humble under God's mighty hand? What does that look like? And am I humble towards the people that I sit next to and with on Sunday mornings and 
that I see throughout the week. Pray and ask God to reveal to you where pride and independence uh, seek to pull you away from that attitude of humility. Um, and then when we come back next week, we'll, we'll discuss some of that. would love to, to get some feedback, to have a, a conversation about what humility very practically looks like in this body. So as you pray and as you think, um, would love for you to be prepared uh, with some things that God has laid on your heart of, of what practically that looks like uh, for you and for, for us. Um, that come with scriptures that God has brought to your mind over the course of this week, places that He has convicted you or challenged you, or revealed something to you. We'd love for us to discuss that next week as we uh, spend a little bit of time in His Word, but also a good bit of time in prayer, and then afterward a, a fellowship meal together as we continue to uh, enjoy each other's company in, in that conversation. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for um, your grace that you give us. You have blessed us beyond measure by um, your power and your majesty and your humility and your lowliness. And help us to get a, a firm grasp in our mind of who you are. Reveal Yourself to us in all Your majesty that we might truly be humble under You and that we might see each other differently. Help us to see one another through Your eyes that You might be glorified in everything that we say and do. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.